Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 19. Hello again, I am Ryan Gray, your host, back with you for another session of the Medical School HQ Podcast, the podcast about medical school, where we take you through the pre-med process, medical school, and even through residency. We're here to take your knowledge of becoming a physician to the next level. Today, I'm pretty much going to jump right into an awesome interview that I had with Dr. Wagner. She's on the faculty at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. She has almost 30 years of experience in the admissions process. She's been the dean of admissions for multiple medical schools, and she just has an incredible background story, which she talks about, but she has a phenomenal breadth of knowledge about the application process, the interview process, and what medical schools are looking for on an application to get an interview. And then once you're at the interview, what the admissions committees, what those interview, what those interviewers are actually looking for during the interview process. So we talk for a while. I hope you listen to the whole thing because from from the beginning to the end, she shares a ton of valuable information that I think you can uh, learn from and use starting now. We start the interview by talking about her path to where she is now. Okay, it's a long path. Uh, let's see, I graduated with a PhD from Washington University at the School of Medicine and Anatomy and took my first job at Rush Medical College in Chicago. Uh, it was a medical school that was just restarting, having you know closed down at, you know, at the end or at the start of World War II. And when they began again, they started with a class of about 50 or 60, and I was brought there to teach anatomy. I was in the Department of uh, Surgery and Tissue Biology. And after a year, the dean called me in, and he said, 
you know, I'd, I like to uh, identify bright young leaders who I think can make a difference, and you're somebody that I've noticed. And so I'm going to start an anatomy department, and would you like to be chair of anatomy or would you like to be dean of admissions? This was one year out of graduate school. Wow. That's a good so choice. I, <laughs> I said, oh, gosh, I think I'd like to be dean of admissions. <laughs> so I began that process, and I stayed at Rush six years, and four of those years I was the dean of admissions. Uh, and then I was recruited to the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine, where I was there for 10 years and had responsibility for all the student programs. Uh, and at that point, I became the national chair of all of the group on student affairs and began working with the NRMP, and I was on the National Board of Medical Examiners. So I actually wrote the electronic residency application process, and that took me off in the direction of the residency selection process. So I did a bunch of work in that area, but I was always interested in admissions. Uh, And then after 10 years, I was recruited to the University of Chicago, uh, Pritzker School of Medicine, and I was there for 14 years as the Dean of Students, and again, did admissions uh, for most of those years. I then sort of semi-retired to the university or to Colorado where my husband wanted to come after following me for so many years. He was an architect. And so when I came here, then the dean of admissions said, oh, Norm, I'd like you to join the admissions committee. And I chaired one of the two uh, committees that you know were held. Then I guess about two years into the process, he said, oh, I'm going to take this job at the AAMC and would you do this for a couple of months, just be the interim associate dean? Well, that turned into two and a half years. So all in all, I was a dean for about 30 years. So, But I've, throughout that time, I've always taught anatomy. I was, uh, you know, in the lab working with medical students, which is always my first love because I'm a teacher at heart. But that's sort of a, that's the story. Okay. So that that kind of puts a little weight behind what you have to say because it it you've you've been there done that been in the trenches uh yeah during... and I've written a fair amount about admissions too yeah so, so that's pretty amazing yeah so over 30 plus years you've seen tremendous change yes i'm hoping you've seen change for the better well certainly you see change in the process and you see change in the applicants uh you know, I wrote a book chapter on, uh, you know, four generations working side by side and some of the values and differences among generations and the conflicts that arise. And, you know, that really came out of observation in both teaching students and in working with students uh, through the admissions process. So I've always been interested in, you know, values and beliefs, and uh, certainly I looked for that in the admissions process. Okay. So I want to kind of dig into interviewing, but to to get to the interview stage, what types of things as as the dean of admissions and kind of the the oversight of the admissions process, what are you teaching your admissions committee members to look for in an application? Well, I think one of the things that committees need to do, and this becomes an LCME requirement, and that is you identify the criteria or the competencies uh, that your school is looking for, plus you understand what the mission of the institution is, 
and you try to factor those in. But your admissions criteria should be driving what it is you look for in the candidates you're selecting. And obviously, you know, depending on whether you're a state institution or you're a private institution, depending on what your dean wants in the way of the proportion of in-state and out-of-state students. So all of those factors become a part of it. But certainly you're looking for candidates who uh, have good critical thinking skills. They are excellent in quantitative reasoning. They like scientific inquiry because if your institution has a big research component or you ask for the students to do a mentored scholarly activity, you want them to have that capability. Obviously, communication skills and certainly a lot of the residency uh, competencies are now driving and they're coming back to medical schools and down into the undergraduate programs, but certainly communication skills. And then you want somebody that's got a knowledge of themselves and others. Uh, Cultural competence, of course, in the last four or five or seven years has become a really important aspect uh, of what medical schools do. You want teamwork because that's the direction medicine is heading. Uh, Obviously, ethical responsibilities. And you want people that can cope well and adapt and are reliable uh, you know, in what they've chosen to do. So, you know, those are sort of a, a bunch of criteria that you put together. I've put together handbooks for faculty, uh, identified questions, given them the materials. We, you know, here when I was the dean of admissions, we posted all the criteria we use online so applicants could see it. We handed out the interview form uh, because, again, my goal always has been in demystifying this process. It's challenging enough for students. Uh, they don't need to be uh, you know, lacking in knowledge of what the school is trying to do coming into this process. I like that. I, I, think, the, I think what you're saying, de- demystifying the process, I think there, there is this air of kind of a veil where students are always trying to dig deeper and find more information. And the fact that you're willing to kind of give it out and say, here's what we're looking for. These are the the qualifications that we want. These are the type of students that we want. It, it relieves a lot of that stress. And I think come interview day or come application submission, a lot of that stress is gone. Do you think that helps the applicant kind of just have a little bit of relief before they come and talk to you in an interview? Well, you'd like to think that's the case. Now, you know, of course, as an anatomist, I always look to see whether the pupils are dilated and how cold the hands are <laughs> and sweaty. So, you know, that gives me an instant message about, you know, the confidence of the student. And, you know, I always see it as my goal to make that student as comfortable as they can be and, you know, allow them to do their best. I feel that's that's a role and a responsibility of faculty interviewers uh, because, you know, this is a high stakes uh, process for them. They spent time and money and a lot of energy to get where they are. So, uh, you know, I mean, that's just a goal I have. But, you know, certainly you'd like to sh- to feel that the more information you give out, the more comfortable students feel. Okay. The, the big two kind of filters for applications always seem to be MCAT and GPA. Mm-hmm. Do you have any gut feeling or do you know of any research uh, or or what you've seen over the years that says GPA is better at determining a good medical student or MCAT is better at determining a good medical student? What's your thought on that? 
Well, the AAMC did some work, oh gosh, I'm trying to think of how many years ago, 10 or 15 years ago. They, uh, you know, used to look at uh, predictors of success because that's always been something that institutions are looking at. And the GPA, uh, you know, the undergraduate GPA and, you know, aspects of the MCAT, although collectively they look at the combined number, uh, gives indication of how well a student might do in the first two years and how they might do on step one. There's nothing that really predicts the third year. I mean, in the third year, the two areas that they know uh, that they want information on is knowledge and professionalism. And those seem to be the factors that in the third year, if you're passing information on to the residencies, if, they, if you can tell them about a student's knowledge base, i.e. their critical thinking skills and all the things that surround that, and you can tell them about their professionalism, you're going to hit half of their competencies. And so that's where they're seeing students who come with high values in you know, those areas, they then can count on a greater degree of success. Okay. But, you know, in the main, there isn't anything in the grades in the MCATs that says this is the end-all, be-all, and this will tell you who's going to be a great physician. You know, but, you know, one of the challenges that medical schools have, and I don't know, you know, how you want to stick to your questions or whatever, but, you know, if you look at the applicant pool, uh, for instance, the 2012 applicant pool, there were 45,266 applicants. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, on average, students are going to submit about 14 applications, and that's been going up for the last several years. Now, when you have 14 applications from this number of total applicants, you're well over a half a million applications in this process. But if you said, okay, how many people are actually matriculating to medical school? It's just under 20,000 right now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, going to go up over the next couple of years with all the new medical schools. Right now, in 2012, there were 137 medical schools. So, you know, roughly 2.3 uh, applications per position. So, you know, medical schools have the responsibility to narrow that group. You know, there are, out of that 137, I think there are 54 medical schools that get between 5,000 and 15,000 uh, applications. And so how do you narrow that group of applications? Well, the initial weight goes to the grades in the MCATs because that's the only standard measure across the board for all applicants. Now, that's where students wind up feeling that only the grades in the MCATs count. And it's really, I mean, admissions is a competitive process. There's no two ways about it. Uh, you know, when you have close to 19,000 students or close to 20,000 students entering medical school, that means roughly half of the pool is going to be interviewed and the other half won't. And so, you know, there is sort of, um, you know, you begin sort of looking at the highest grades and the highest MCATs and the, and as you review the application in total, you try to pick, because you're doing a holistic admissions process, you're trying to to invite those top students first because all the schools are going to go after those students. And then you work your way down the process. So, you know, when I'm counseling students, I always say to them, you know, look, if you've got a 3.4 and a 30 in your combined MCATs, 
you're not going to be the first off the block they're going to invite to interview. You're probably looking at January or February in an application year. So, you know, you try to give them some assurance that there's opportunity out there, but there are certainly a lot of students with high GPAs and high MCATs. Now, one of the things we do know about the GPA is that there's tremendous grade inflation, and that's been going on across the board. So it sort of shifted the weight in some respects to the MCAT. Now, the MCAT does show success on those who can pass step one, and of course, that's a critical piece for students uh, in being able to really get into residency anymore. I mean, that's sort of the bottom line. They must pass that step one, and they need to do it on the first time. Yeah, and they need to do well if they want the residency of their choice. Absolutely. Okay, that's a that's a great answer for that. Um, so, yeah, I, I grade inflation is definitely, it seems to be a, a big issue. And at some point, it's kind of, uh, at, at what point do you just not trust it anymore? Or are we at that point now? Well, I think the schools are trying to address it themselves because they don't want to be known as schools that do great inflation. Uh, I know Harvard's tried to address it. Princeton's tried to tried to address it. There's several of the schools where, you know, when 95% of your students are graduating with honors, you you got to say there's something wrong here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's and you're looking at letters of recommendation and other things. So the schools get a sense of where the great inflators are. And, you know, because you you have enough history with some institutions. Now, I'm not so sure I'd want to put Harvard and Princeton out there as, you know, that, but that's in the literature. So that's not something I just made up. But nonetheless, you know, I think schools do take a look at at, how successful their students are. And most of them are critical in that assessment because they want to get, you know, further applicants to come to their institution and applicants going to college are smart enough now to ask the question, you know, how many students applied, how many got in, what are the average MCATs, what is the average GPA, et cetera. So, you know, that's the, I think they work on it you know, realistically, but it's a challenge. There's no question about it. Okay. So as students lucky enough to get an interview request mm-hmm. to University of Colorado, uh-huh. And I actually interviewed there back when I applied in 19, no, not 19, 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm familiar with, with the area there. But mm-hmm. what, as a student, getting that, that in, uh, invitation, mm-hmm. what would you recommend the first step be for them to prepare for the University of Colorado or, or whatever school they're getting interviewed at? to prepare for that specific interview? Yeah. Okay, I have a series of things I encourage students to do, and I can sort of go through those. And, you know, it overlaps with some of the things that that you wanted to talk about additionally. But, you know, if you said, does the process in 2002 look like the process in 2013? The answer is no. Now, you know, if you restrict it to this school only, it probably does look the same as it did in 2002. But assuming a student has applied to 14 schools, uh, there are now two types of interviews, as you well know. There's sort of the standard one, which they continue to do here. 
And then there's the multiple mini interviews, and there are about 15 schools in the U.S. that are now participating in that. Those are two different animals, and the students must prepare differently. And I'll talk about later about what they can do. But let's talk for a minute about the standard interview. You know, if you coming here, you know, in the interviews, you have two interviews. They're roughly 30 minutes apiece, although, you know, across the country, it may be one interview or maybe two interviewers. They can be 20 minutes to an hour. But I always say to students, you know, with the 14 schools you applied to, let's say, and you're, maybe you're strong enough to get interviews at all 14. But, you know, what you want to do for yourself is sit down and prepare a dossier about each school. You know, sort of ask yourself the question, why did I apply to this school? What do I think are its, you know, strongest attributes that I would do well as a student there? Because that potentially is a question. The other thing is, it, you know, when you get the school's materials, you want to go to their website, you want to read all of their material, you want to make up some questions that you're going to ask to the students, you're going to make up some questions you want to ask to the interviewer, and you also want to look at what time is the interview, where do I go, uh, where do I park, all those details. So, and then, you know, something I talked to you about before, and that is you look to see if they've identified their criteria or their competencies. So, that's gathering data about the school that's important for you. And you just build a little folio on each of the schools you're applying to. Then, you know, secondly, you want to determine whether it's an open or a closed interview. And sometimes they're called blind interviews or partially blind interviews or open interviews. And, you know, the blind interviews where they're truly, they don't give the interviewer anything. Those are by far the hardest interviews. Uh, those are ones where often the student has to redact information that they put on their applications. So it's not the most pleasant one for the student. Plus, they also are likely to ask them questions like, tell me about yourself, which is an awful question to start with if you haven't prepared an answer for that one. Or questions like, why should we take you? Or why did you apply here? So very open-ended, very abstract questions trying to learn about a candidate. And if it's only a half hour, you see, you you may or may not wind up with the kind of information that's truly helpful to you as a school. One of the reasons Colorado uses the, uh, you know, partially blind interview, as we call it, we get the AMCAS application and the supplemental. And the intent is for the committee to focus on the criteria, but not to be biased by grades and MCATs that pre-directs them to certain questions that then confirms for them why they should take that student. So it causes them to focus on what the student has written and to look you know, carefully at the student's passion and goals and things like that. Now, the open interview, again, is one where you know, the student is a little more at risk, but I think there are things they can do to sort of cover themselves. You know, one of the things I always say to students is you need to sit down and review your application. What did you say about yourself, your goals, your experiences? Because, you know, if, you, if you're in the partially blind or the open interview, you're going to be asked questions about what you wrote. One of the things that uh, students often are cautioned about is if you wrote on there that you speak Spanish, you need to be real careful, particularly here in Colorado, because a lot of people on our admissions committee speak Spanish, and they'll conduct the whole interview in Spanish. <laughs> and if you aren't fluent in Spanish, as you said you were fluent in Spanish, you're down the drain. So, you know, other things that, 
you know, they might may, may want to talk to you about your research. Uh, most of the students who come here have done research, and you know, who knows, you might get partnered up with somebody that is doing research in that area. So you want to know why you've done the work and how you get that across becomes very important. Um, I always say to the students, you want to, you know, take notes about the school, and that that was the dossier that I mentioned. You know, because the interviewers are going to expect you to ask them questions. And when you've studied about the school, then you don't wind up asking them questions that they could have read on the website. That really doesn't go positively for a student if that's what they wind up doing. So, you know, there are questions that definitely should be directed to the student and questions that could be directed to the interviewer. And I can, I've got some suggestions for those. Okay. Um, one, you know, one quick hmm? question. Yeah about uh, what you were just saying about speaking Spanish and yes. and uh-huh. kind of getting almost called out. Uh, yes. There's always a question among applicants about discussing in their personal statement poor grades or poor MCAT score and, tra- mm-hmm. and almost trying to explain it on a personal statement. Do you- they, should, they should not do that. Okay, and why is that? Well, because they may be coming to an interview where it isn't an open interview and you're just disclosing information. And if asked, you know, about a grade or an MCAT, you want to be able yourself to practice that in advance. You want to, you know, present that to somebody. You want them to hear what you say so that it doesn't come off as complaining, whining, blaming, or any of the above. So, you know, and I said, you know, I always say to students, there are circumstances that prevail and you have to be forthright and honest and you give out that information. But I think writing about it in your application, you know, unless it were something, you know, for instance, let's say there was a tragedy in the family, but, you know, you might write about the tragedy in the family, the impact on you as a person, allow the reader to deduce what happened academically you know and if it's a if it's sort of a singular time in the application and the student winds up doing better at the end again you know if they have access to the application they may ask it i think you introduce in the personal statement those things that you definitely want somebody to talk to you about but you it's it's very tricky to write those mm-hmm. very tricky so i always you know, encourage students if there are, if there are circumstances that came up that enabled growth or change or challenges, it's okay to write about those. But leave the reviewer some opportunity to say, "Oh, gee, that must have been terrible." There are things that must have happened during that time, and you can say, "Yes, it had a great impact on my grades," or whatever. It there are ways to bring it up. But it's subtle, and it isn't direct because writing about that is very tough. Okay. Um, other points you want me to talk about with respect to how to prepare? Um, you, you you briefly mentioned maybe it, that you have some topics as well. The uh-huh. how to prepare for that question from the interviewer. Do you have any questions for me? Yeah. And you you hit the nail on the head already with the don't ask dumb easy questions. Yeah. What what types of questions should the 
applicant be thinking about? Well, I think that, um, you know, you want to be able to, you mean what they should ask the, the school? Yeah. Um, I think there are a variety of things. I mean, if you get a chance during the interview, you say, uh, you know, what kind of students do you believe do best in this school? Or, you know, you you can say, do you think the faculty are happy with the current curriculum structure or do you think there are areas they might want to improve or change? Okay. Or, or you say, you know, how do you feel about the cost of medical education here? Or are there unique aspects to the school that would encourage faculty to have their son or daughter go here? Or are there any special programs for which the school is noted? And, you know, I think those are the kinds of things that I would ask. Okay. So it's the majority of those questions were opinion-based questions. It's okay to, to ask opinion-based questions to the interviewer? Yeah, because, and the thing is, the interviewer may not be able to answer them. I think you have to prepare for that because, you know, if you look at the array of people who are now interviewing, medical schools are pulling in community physicians. They're pulling in, I mean, on the committee here, we had uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of the judges from the Supreme Court. We had a public defender. We had a community lawyer. Uh, you know, so they don't know the ins and outs of the medical school curriculum. That's just not where they're living at the moment. And so they may not be able to answer some of those, but, you know, or you could say to, I mean, if it's somebody who's introduced themselves and they say, you know, I'm a, I'm a Supreme Court judge here in the state of Colorado, one of the questions you might want to ask them is, so why would you choose to participate in the medical school admissions process? How does it benefit you? How do you think it benefits the students? Hmm. So, you know, you can always, you know, depending on who you're interviewing with, I mean, you want to be kind to them as well because, you know, obviously they're in a role of, you know, helping the admissions committee and, you know, they, they want to help. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I don't know how I would feel if I got a Supreme Court judge as my interviewer. <laughs> well, we have one. Yeah, no, I, I, I like that. Um, hopefully you don't meet him later after you graduate school as... Somebody, that's true. <laughs> somebody going through a malpractice suit. But that's a different story. Yep. Um, okay. So what, as an interviewer, what is your goal during that interview? Well, you're looking for consistency of response. Uh, you're looking for depth of knowledge. You're looking for how has the student reality tested himself or herself. You're looking for their depth of desire to do medicine or their passion for medicine. Obviously, you're looking at, you know, the criteria that, uh, you know, I've mentioned to you. Now, you know, I happen to be a Socratic interviewer. I'm known as a difficult interviewer. Uh, I don't like to ask questions that I think the students have prepared. I never ask a student, why do you want to become a physician? Because you get a recitation that the student has prepared. I think there are a lot better ways to ask that question and get an answer that works. But, you know, I tend to ask questions that are things like, uh, 
you know, conscientiousness is a known and important quality in physicians. Uh, you know, what is conscientiousness as you think about it? Could you give me a definition, a working definition that you use? And then if I were to ask your help in, uh, you know, giving me insights about you as a person with respect to your conscientiousness, such that I could take that information back to the admissions committee, what would you say to me? Those are the kind of questions I ask. Or I might ask them about integrity, or I might ask them about self-assessing, you know, those sorts of things. Wow. So... I, I think I, I'd be pretty sweaty in an interview with you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was at the University of Chicago, one of the applicants said to me, you know, do you ever look on those interview uh, comments from different medical schools? He said, somebody said you were the 13th most difficult interviewer in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> I said, Tell I'm going to have to work to live that down. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you try to work harder to climb up to number one? No, I said, I'll just keep asking what I ask. <laughs> do, do you purposely, and purposely is kind of the wrong word, but do you try to throw curveballs? No. Okay. No, I, you know, my interviews tend to be fairly, you know, I start in a very benign fashion. You know, I always say, you know, tell me a little bit about your family and about yourself so that I get a sense of, you know, the support you work with in the context of your environment. And then I work up, I, you know, ask something about the school, their choice of the school. I ask them a little bit about coursework, but then there are always going to be two or three of these tough questions because I really want to know if they can do critical thinking. That's very important to me. Okay. And so, and, you know, obviously you try to, you know, draw out some of the uniqueness of the candidate you try to get a sense of the creativity they have, what creativity means to them, uh, how they've engaged in it, uh, you know, all of those things. I mean, I like a student who, you know, comes in with a positive attitude and, you know, they're confident. Uh, I want them to maintain eye contact. Sometimes they don't do that well. Mm. I want them to be open and honest and believe in what they're saying. Because genuineness is very important to me. To me, that's the key to how you connect with others. I like to see a sense of humor. Uh, those are all really important to me uh, in a successful interview. Okay. Let's talk about some some basics. Mm-hmm. So, some of the things that I think kind of uh, worry students the most, sure. and that's dress and appearance. Mm-hmm. Is it for for some college students out there that may have never worn a suit. Mm-hmm. Would you say it's 100% mandatory to wear a suit to a medical school interview? No, we're talking about men, women, both. Uh, let's talk about men. Okay. Um, well, buying a suit is not an inexpensive proposition. So I always encourage people to go to um, a resale shop, a good one, and find a nice suit or a nice sports jacket and nice pants and a good shirt and tie. So I think you could wear slacks and a sports jacket. Uh, or if you are well-built and 
nice looking. You could wear a very nice, uh, you know, turtleneck shirt underneath a sports jacket. But I think you want to look professional. Doesn't have to be a black suit. Doesn't have to be a blue suit. And we always commented when we went in to, you know, talk to the group of applicants. Everybody's got on blue and black today. And we always liked seeing a spark of creativity. Now, you don't want the spark to be so loud and noticeable that it detracts from you as a candidate. So that's how I always think about it. You know, wear something that's reasonably conservative, but it doesn't have to be so conservative that you melt into the woodwork. And so, you know, I always say for men and women, you know, if you if you find something in a nice brown, tan color, sage, uh, you know, deep mauve, whatever works for you, your good colors, and you're comfortable wearing it, then go with it. Because nobody's going to criticize you. You're not going to say, oh, he doesn't have a black suit on. No hot pink, though. No hot pink. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So I'm, I'm comfortable in hot pink. That's <laughs> good. <laughs> uh, what about facial hair for men? Well, you know, uh, I mean, I get a lot of magazines and watch some degree of TV, and there's a lot of, but it, it's been an increasing amount of facial hair in men for the last few years, uh, such that it looks like two days past the five o'clock shadow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think that's not good. I mean, if you have a beard and, you know, it's well manicured, then fine. Uh, but to look like you haven't shaved in three days, no, that's just not good. Okay. So full mustache, full beard, you're good. But if you're yeah. in between, shave it right. off. Right. Okay. It's a, an appropriate question. Being in the military as I am, it's uh-huh. it's mustache march. Yep. But I don't participate because I don't grow mustache very well. <laughs> what are What are some of the things that you see interviewees doing doing wrong the majority of the time? What do you see the most common mistake being made? Um, probably not preparing well enough, uh, not doing their homework uh, that they need to. Uh, you know, the fact that they need to read, read, read to be knowledgeable about healthcare issues, ethical issues, stories about physicians, read a book because they might get asked about what book they're going to read. They don't often do that as extensively enough as they might need to. Um, I think that, uh, I mean, I have had experience where women have worn uh, skirts that are too short and they ride up. And we had an experience here a few years ago with a student who had a blouse on that was gaping. Uh, You know, that's just not paying enough attention to the things that you really need to be able to say, you know, somebody's looked at me who's a friend, uh, a family member, and given me the A-OK that I look good, that I, you know, can stand up to the test, does he or she look professional enough? So. I think eye contact, being positive, you know, shaking your hand. The other thing that you sometimes get from students are 
you know, particularly if they or if they're overly anxious, you ask them a question, and they go on and on and on and on and on and on and answer things you've not asked them, and that comes out of anxiety. I mean, you want them to answer the question. You don't want it to be so short you don't get an insight into their thinking or their beliefs or their values, but you want to see the depths of knowledge. You want to see that they're insightful. You want to see that they have empathy. You want to see that they communicate. But there's a fine line of knowing when to quit. So those are some of the things I see. Okay. Let's talk about the multiple mini-interview for a little bit. Do you so, think stu- students know about it? Do you think they know what it is? I, yeah, I, I think they they are becoming more and more aware of it. I think mm-hmm. it's... It's something that is obviously still new, and we kind of joke that it's the speed dating of interviews. And but, yeah, but uh, it it really isn't, honestly. Yeah, I mean that that's a misnomer, you know, because it's not about connecting with the interviewer, but how the applicant responds to a series of standardized situations. I mean, and that's really quite different. Uh, although, if you read Stanford's, have you looked at Stanford's website? No, uh, Dr. Garcia, who's actually a friend of mine, he describes, uh, you know, the MMI, which Stanford now does, as speed dating on steroids. But I read that I read that website and it made me anxious and I wasn't even doing an interview there. I mean, it's really anxiety provoking. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, this is, you know, with the eight to 10 stations and about a 90 minutes the students spend there, uh, you know, they need to prepare very differently for this. Um, you know, they need to know the types of questions that are asked. And there's a fair amount now on the web that you can get, you can garner, you can download some of McMaster's questions free. But, you know, they basically have it segued out in those eight or ten stations to questions, scenarios, and tasks. And, you know, they're mainly looking for communication and social interaction and compassion and problem-solving teamwork and all that stuff. So, you know, each of those, whether it's a question or whether it's a scenario and you're interacting with an actor or whether it's a task and you're working with another applicant, uh, you know, those are the things that, you know, you have to prepare for. And it just requires that the student be more flexible, that they uh, learn to think on their feet quickly. Uh, And so, you know, I think one of the things, I mean, and the MMI now is being utilized almost all across Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and some in the UK. So, it's gaining momentum. Uh, more of the MMI is offered on the West Coast, a couple in the Midwest, and one on the East Coast. So I think the students need to look, and is it one of the schools they've applied to, and might they be a participant in this? And if they do, they have to really look at it. You know, there are some strengths for, the, for that. I think the, the message that you keep hearing is, well, when you're interviewing in a medical school and you've got one or two interviewers, if you don't connect with that interviewer, it can be a problem for you and and really be devastating in terms of your ability to get in. Whereas with the MMI, you're going to see eight different people. So if you have a single bad station, you'll still get in or you still could get in. You know, all these raiders are trained and they want them to be able to fine-tune one station so that they feel like they get more reliability on the scoring. And, you know, schools have to spend a fair amount of money to retool to do this process, but they can get scenarios that can be developed and purchased. And so, uh, and I think McMaster's has shown that it has a certain predictability for success on their, 
uh, Canadian medical exam that they take. Uh, you know, and searching through the literature myself, because I've been interested for a long time in, you know, what are the weaknesses? It's very hard to find the weaknesses that, because there's, you know, this is a new process, so there aren't any long-term data. And, you know, particularly including how students might do in residency, having been selected on the basis of the MMI. And, you know, there's some questions that advisors have been raising, and that is, how well do schools really get to know the students through this process if they're only spending 90 minutes with them? And the question of whether, you know, will these scenarios that are developed by McMasters and others who are doing this process, will they get out and will they, uh, you know, be available to applicants creating a degree of unfairness? And I think that that has been, uh, you know, detailed by a few students, uh, you know, on the blogs they've put out there, mm-hmm. that indeed some of the McMaster's questions were ones they experienced in a school where they went through this process. Uh, you know, the other question is, you know, if you if you said, what's the purpose of the interview anyway? Really, the four purposes that you can come up with, three of them are directed to the students. You know, first is it's a public relations device because you want the applicant to think your school is fabulous and to go back and tell all the, all the students at his own school that that's the place they should apply. You know, secondly, you know, it's, it's a recruitment device for schools because, you, you know, you get a good candidate in the interview. You want to recruit them heavily. And thirdly, you know, you want the student to have his or her questions answered. And the fourth purpose of an interview is to gather data. So you can see when three of the purposes are of the interview are for the candidate you wonder whether the MMI succeeds in that regard. And I've seen nothing in the literature on that. Uh, you know, some of the students, um, well, most of the schools who are doing this process say that, you know, the students don't find this highly stressful. Although if you read the blog, some of the students say they really hated it and it was a problem. So I think there's mixed reviews on that. And Davis recently came out with some inter- with some information based on two or three years of doing the MMI saying that, this process definitely, uh, you know, goes to the extrovert. Uh, they benefit by this process and do well in this process. And so the schools have to ask, do I want a whole class of extroverts? And the students, as I said, need to really practice the flexibility in facing new situations with confidence because that's not how they do, uh, you know, I mean, they need the confidence and, and they need to go into the admission, the standard admissions process very differently. Um, you know, I guess uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, you don't have a chance to do because it, it isn't introduced in this process is you don't have a chance to check out the validity of what the students have written on their AMCAS application. So if a student has slightly embellished their credentials, you wouldn't have any way of knowing that. Like, can they really speak Spanish? And, you know, advisors to the medical schools are now, or to the undergraduate schools, are going to definitely have to help their students prepare in two different processes. So those are some of the weaknesses. So, you know, I mean, that I've found, and I mean, some that I've thought about for a long time, because I know uh, the dean here, when I was the, the dean of admissions, he encouraged me to seriously look at this process, thought it would be a great way to go. Well, they still haven't done that in the last couple of years. So I think some of the schools are looking. The question is, is it going to be, is it a fad? Is it going to continue on? And perhaps with more reliable information coming out about, you know, how does it work in the residency level, then they might be more convinced.
Yeah, I think I think that'll be the the interesting data that needs to be gathered is ha- what type of physician does this make down the line? Right. Are, are are the students that are being selected through this process good uh team members working yeah. in a team because that that is you you said it earlier that's the way healthcare is going you work in a team. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of goes towards an extrovert. So Yeah. I, It'll be interesting. I don't. I don't know. Uh, like you said, is it a fad or is it not? But uh, I, I think the time will tell, and when we get more data, it'll it'll open up our eyes to what's going on. Yep, I think that's true. In in your heart of hearts, do you think this will keep gaining momentum and kind of be the the norm? Well, you know, it. I, I just have mixed feelings about it because one of the problems with you know the standard interviewing is it it's not that reliable. It's very difficult to train interviewers in spite of all the efforts you make uh, you know to get them to focus on thinking about the school's you know criteria or their competencies and figuring out and even giving them questions that work uh, because obviously it's one on one in those interviews, and you know it that there's subject there's subjectivity there's a certain degree of bias uh there's sometimes a lack of experience uh the perception is this is like a job interview or this is like interviewing a patient none of those two are true i mean this is really a very specialized kind of interview which takes practice and knowledge about what you're looking for and how to go about it so you know i mean i have had that question asked me for years uh, about, you know, can you really teach people to interview in a way that, you know, you gain that reliability and validity that you're looking for. And I'm, uh, you know, sad to say that's probably not possible unless you've got a very limited number of people doing all of the interviews, which is not realistic. So maybe the MMI will move forward in a way that and they'll and schools will find a way to balance uh, some of the the criticisms or the weaknesses by adding uh, something that you know gathers data about the student in a more personal way and accomplishes some of the goals that I said the interview is set for. Okay. One of the things we didn't really talk about is mock interviewing, and uh-huh. if you, you think that's a a valuable piece of preparing. Yes, I think students should do mock interviews. I'm not so sure I'd go online and as I saw somebody who was offering mock interviews uh, probably through Skype for $475. No, I think you can find physicians, you can find pre-med advisors, you can find, I know here at our own school, our diversity group of students offer an evening before dinner and an evening before for diversity students because you know, we're a school that had very low diversity numbers, and so we've tried to do, you know, everything possible to increase that. But, you know, certainly, you know, there are plenty of, you know, students and people around here. You know, our upper-class students will do mock interviews. The, you know, faculty will help with mock interviews. So, yes, I would do a mock interview. And then also, when you're, when you're choosing to go to your medical schools, I always say to students, don't go to the one you want to go to first. You know, interviewing is a skill. 
Mm. It takes two or three times to go through it before you feel confident that you can manage it because you see enough replication from process to process that you feel like, yeah, I can do this with confidence. So you pick your school you really want to go to to be about third or fourth in line. And that's when you go to it. Yeah, it's the same, the same advice that we give for when for you resident. do your, uh, your uh, uh, sub, sub-internship for residency. Sure. So you don't, yep. you don't want to go do your sub-I at, a, at the program that you really want to go to. You want to work out the kinks beforehand. That is true. All right. Like I said, amazing information. I hope you take that information. hope you wrote a bunch of notes. Some of the stuff that we talked about will be in the show notes. You can get that at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 19. If you have any questions about this session, go ahead and jump on that session 19 link and leave a comment in the uh, comments section. If you have a general question for the show, head over to medicalschoolhq.net slash feedback. There we'll give you... uh, all the information about how to contact us or leave us a voicemail. I want to take a second here to ask for some help from you guys that are listening. If you're listening, if you find value in this, please help us out. Help us reach as many people as we can. The way iTunes work is the more ratings that we have, the more reviews that we have, the higher up we are on the list in iTunes, and that makes us more visible to other people out there searching for this kind of information. So if you can go into the show notes at medicalschoolhq.net slash session 19, there's a link to leave a review and a rating. If you could go into iTunes and do that, a five-star rating would be amazing if you think we deserve it. I want to thank you beforehand for, for doing that for us. I hope the information provided today will help better guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Make sure to join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters. (laughs) 